Is there feedback over there? No, oh, good. Um, and uh, Chris has been here quite some time, but before he came here. Uh, okay, I'll, should I ignore that, Ken? Yeah. Um, before he came here, he did his uh, MD degree at, at BU, uh, moving there from graduating from Bowdoin College. Uh, and following that, he did a master's at Penn uh, and then went on to do his internship and residency uh, starting off at Tufts and then transitioning over to the National Institutes of Health for the remainder of that and a fellowship in hematology, then came here where he's been very active in, in all the aspects of what makes an academic medical center uh, what it is, research, teaching, clinical work, programmatic development, um, uh, and, and, he, and he remains so today. Some of you may know that he's the vice chair of our department uh, for clinical affairs, and he's also the chief of the division of hematology within our section, uh, and uh, has been very active in all, all in research and teaching and evaluation of research and promotion of research uh, throughout the country in terms of study sections, uh, review boards. He's on the editorial board of the American Journal of Hematology, and I can go on and on. Uh, but uh, I was puzzling a little bit about the the title a little bit. Um, uh, uh, Chris, let me ask you a question. The, what's the definition of haplology? I have no idea. No idea. Because <laughs> that's the root of haplo. So haplology, uh, I think the most relevant definition is an instance of deleting one of two almost identical syllables within a word. Huh? Right? So I think you can kind of see, you'll see how that sort of uh, factors in here because the, his title is haploidentical hematopoietic stem cell transplants. I, I could do that five times fast because I practiced, but I won't bother you. Uh, a glass half empty or a glass that is full. Okay, so that's a little bit different. Uh, he has no co conflictual f f uh, opinions or feelings about this topic. <laughs> And the activity code that you can uh, uh, text uh, to the proper place, I can give you the number, uh, 346-4334, area code 603, is 3-capital-P, capital-V, capital-I. 3-PVI, all caps. So having said all that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Christopher H. Lowry. H. Lowry. Brad, that was a, a great introduction. I really appreciate that. And um, Brad brings up a point, let me just get this set here, that um, my title may have been a little obscure for those of you who aren't involved in uh, transplant. So let me just explain for a moment. Um, I know you, you all know about bone marrow transplants. They're an amazing thing where we can take people with uncurable severe cancers or genetic diseases like leukemia and lymphoma and take stem cells from a donor and give them to the patient and cure these uncurable diseases. And almost everybody, if they know anything about transplant, they know if you um, have a, a patient, they need um, a perfect match is the best thing. 
Even if we have a patient uh, who comes down with leukemia in northern Vermont, the first thing their friends and family will do is talk to us about trying to have a drive to find a match in the local area. This haploidentical thing referred to in the title is probably the biggest thing that's come to transplant this decade is that we may not need perfect matches anymore. Maybe just a half a match can be as good a full glass as a perfect match. And so what I'm going to tell you about today is um, our first patient who we've done a haploidentical transplant here and then go back and give you uh, the background so you can appreciate how this works, how we've been able to do that, and uh, kind of the history that leads up to it. So um, I'm going to start off with a case. So um, our story begins in 2010 when a 55-year-old man is referred by his primary care provider to the hematology clinic for chronic anemia. He's a relatively healthy person. He has about a five-year history of mild rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, he's been treated off and on with methotrexate and Plaquenil. His big thing is golf. He loves to golf. And uh, uh, that's his life, his, his, uh, his passion. And so instead of having a picture of him, which I didn't think would be kind of right, I just, that's kind of like a representation of our patient, the golf club in the ball. <laughs> Um, so uh, when he first presents, his counts aren't that bad. His white count is 3.6, his hemoglobin is down a little at 12.6, his MCV is normal, and his platelets are mildly low at 133. So his, uh, he's not given any further methotrexate or Plaquenil. He's given a trial of folic acid, and that doesn't help. So uh, he undergoes a bone marrow biopsy. And uh, this initial workup was done by Dr. Hill. And... Uh, other doctors might have uh, just kind of ignored this, but he went uh, the full distance and did the workup. And it turned out this patient um, <clears throat> had a, a normal-looking marrow at the high, high, um, you know, high up, but when you look closer, he actually had dyspoesis and 6% blast, which is slightly elevated. So that gave him the diagnosis of myelodysplastic syndrome. And this was an early one. We call it RAED1, or refractory anemia, with excess blasts, and his cytogenetics were normal. So the re recommendation at that time was for a watchful waiting approach. That means, you know, he's a healthy guy, his counts aren't that bad, we don't really need to do anything, we'll just watch him. And that's what was done over the next several years. And uh, you can see from 2010 to 2016, this is his hemoglobin, started out just below normal, but it gradually fell to about 12 over time. This is his platelets. They went from 133 down to the 50s. And his neutrophil count went from normal um, down to about 400, putting him at risk of a serious infection. And uh, this just kind of shows a comparison of his uh, counts and his other findings between 2010 and 2016. You can see that his bone marrow was now more cellular, up to 70%. That means he had ineffective hematopoiesis. Even though he had a lot of cells in his marrow, they weren't able to mature normally. His blasts were still a little bit increased at 8%, but more than before. Cytogenetics were still normal, but uh, we now have the ability to look for gene mutations. And he has the DNA methyl, methyl transferase 3A mutation, which is associated with um, myelodysplastic syndrome. So because his counts were falling, 
and uh, they were going to keep falling. We knew from all of this. It was recommended that he undergo a bone marrow transplant with curative intent because we knew he was just going to get worse and uh, was at risk of bleeding and infection when his counts would continue to fall. So now we're going to step back and uh, talk about the history of transplant and how it leads all the way up to this, uh, uh, the advance we're gonna, that's the subject of today's lecture. So the history of transplant, weirdly enough, goes back to the 1940s when the atomic bombs were dropped on Japan in World War II. And um, you might wonder how that can happen, but I'll tell you. So um, this is a, a picture here of President Obama. He was the first U.S. president to go to Hiroshima. And he met with a survivor, shown here, of the uh, nuclear blast. And then down below, you can see um, this building now, which is the Hiroshima Peace Memorial. And uh, you can see it was one of the very few buildings that was left standing after the bombs were dropped. And it's been maintained in the same um, status. They haven't fixed it up or anything, but it, now it's a memorial where um, President Obama met with the survivor and uh, the other people there. But the, the interesting thing with regard to today's lecture is that when they dropped the bomb in Hiroshima, about 140,000 people died. Half of those people died immediately, just from the, the heat and the concussion of the bomb and all that. But the other half of the people died several weeks later, and um, most of them with uncontrolled bleeding and infections. So this was a mystery illness. Nobody expected this, because nobody had ever dropped an atomic bomb before. And uh, <clears throat> this is a, a report here. And uh, the first one is from Wilfred Burchette, who was a reporter for the Daily Express. And he was in Hiroshima soon after the bomb fell. And he says, in the hospitals, he was visiting the hospitals, I found people who, when the bomb fell, suffered absolutely no injuries, but now are dying from the uncanny after effect. He says, no apparent reason for their health began to fail. They lost appetite, their hair fell out, bluish spots appeared on their bodies, and the bleeding began from the ears, nose, and mouth. At first, the doctors told me they thought these were symptoms of general debility, and um, they were given vitamin A injection. The results were horrible. The flesh started rotting away from the hole caused by the injection of the needle, and in every case, the victim died. And then uh, below that is a quote from a Dr. Mishihiko Hachiaya. Hope I said that close to somewhere close to right. Um, he said the petechiae in particular became an obsession, a mark of death to those affected. Affected, and he wrote in his diary, everyone had begun to examine one another for these ominous spots until it seemed we would be suffering from a spot phobia. I too became afraid. When I got back to my bed, I examined every inch of my body. And you can imagine the relief I felt when I found that I had no petechiae. So these petechiae that he talks about, these are what we see in patients who have very low platelets. So a patient who's received chemo and their platelets go low, or uh, if they have ITP, immune thrombocytopenia, they get these little tiny bruises. Sometimes they're not quite so little tiny. And these are what we call petechiae. And these people who um, were not immediately injured by the blast developed petechiae because their platelets were very low. And here's a, a picture of one of the victims. 
So this led, you know, people were really worried about this and one thought they should figure it out. So it stimulated a vast amount of research following, uh, you know, the realization that it was probably related to radiation from the nuclear bombs that were dropped. And um, I'm going to tell you about some of that research. And um, one of the ways they did this was to use mice. So they would irradiate mice. And then just like the people at Hiroshima, the mice would become pancytopenic. So they'd become anemic, and their white count would go low, and go low, and their platelets would fall. And then they would die from anemia and bleeding and infection, just like um, the people did at Hiroshima. So one of the things that came out of this research is that you could rescue these mice by giving them bone marrow from uh, what we call a syngeneic mouse or a mouse that is genetically identical. So you could irradiate the mouse, then give them bone marrow from this donor mouse. Their counts would still go low, but they wouldn't die because their blood counts would recover in a, a week or two. And so this was the first example of doing a bone marrow transplant. And it led to the discovery of stem cells. So now stem cells are everywhere. We know there's lung stem cells, GI stem cells, uh, brain stem cells. <clears throat> but these were hematopoietic stem cells. And when you gave bone marrow from one mouse to another to rescue it, what you're really doing is transferring these stem cells. And a single stem cell, shown here, can give rise to all the, all the other blood cells that we have in our body, the lymphocytes, um, <clears throat> um, the red cells, the platelets, and all the different white cells that protect us from infection. So um, it's now been possible to take a single stem cell and put it in a radiated mouse and regrow their whole um, bone marrow, their whole blood system. So it's a really quite amazing discovery that came out of this. So uh, just a little bit more about stem cells. These are pictures of stem cells that we isolated in our lab. Rod Rodwell Mabera, if you know him, he isolated those stem cells. And uh, they look just like small lymphocytes. Most of them are in the G0 phase, which means they're not cycling, and that helps protect them against insults from the environment. Um, at any one time, only a few stem cells need to be active in our bodies to make all our blood cells. Most of them are just sitting there quietly. Um, they self-renew. So every time a stem cell divides, it not only gives rise to all the other blood cells, but it also reproduces another stem cell. So throughout our lives, we never run out of stem cells. And it's just these cells that we use in bone marrow transplant. So there are some key facts that were learned from these early ex experiments. And um, one of the things that was found was that donor and recipient mice needed to be matched from their immune system. So that means they had to be genetically identical. If they weren't matched, then a couple of things happened. One is that if you gave bone marrow from an unmatched mouse to a mouse that had been irradiated, their counts would start to come back, but then they would get this thing they called wasting disease. And we now know that that's graft-versus-host disease. Their hair would fall out, they'd lose weight, they wouldn't want to eat or drink, and uh, then they would die. But that's uh, graft-versus-host disease, and what that really is is the immune system from the donor cells attacking the body of, in this case, the mouse, or in a transplant patient, um, attacking the patient's body. 
Um, it was also found out that the mice needed a pretty high dose of radiation. If you didn't give them enough radiation, then they would just reject the donor cells. Their own immune system would attack the donor cells before they could ever engraft. So that was really important. So based on all these results, um, a few people, and foremost among them, Dr. E. Donnell Thomas, shown here, thought of the idea of doing bone marrow transplantation. And what his conceptualization of this was, that if you had a, a, a patient with a life-threatening disease, and it could be a genetic disease, like um, sickle cell disease, or Gaucher's disease, or severe combined immunodeficiency, or it could be um, an acquired disease, like leukemia, lymphoma, multiple myeloma, myelodysplastic syndrome or aplastic anemia, these all involve the blood cells. So if you could give them a very high dose of radiation, you could wipe out all those cells, and then you could give them a transplant from a donor and replace those cells, and the new cells wouldn't have the disease, and they'd grow, and the patient would um, be cured of their disease. So... Um, it took a while to develop this, and uh, first they tried animal experiments, and it seemed to be pretty promising. Then in the late 1950s, um, a few patients were treated, and Dr. Donnell Thomas was the first one to do this, and he actually did it at Mary Imogene Bassett Hospital, his first patient, in Cooperstown, New York, which seems really uh, an unlikely place to do the first uh, therapeutic bone marrow transplant. But uh, he had a patient, a young uh, woman, and I think she was in her 20s, and she had an identical sibling uh, to do the transplant, and they gave her very high doses, lethal doses of radiation, and then gave her cells from her sibling. And uh, she did have some count recovery, but unfortunately her leukemia came back, and she died soon thereafter. Dr. Thomas uh, left uh, Cooperstown, New York, and went on to Seattle, where he uh, joined the faculty of the University of Washington and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, and uh, became world famous for his uh, pioneering studies in bone marrow transplant, and he received the Nobel Prize in 1990 for his work on this. Another early transplant, um, and the first ones in Europe, were performed after the Vinca, you've probably never heard of this, the Vinca nuclear accident, and that Vinca doesn't refer to Vincristine here, uh, but this is a town um, <clears throat> in uh, Europe, can't remember what country. Serbia. Serbia, thank you, is it up there? <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, Belgrade, okay. Yeah, there it is, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's hard to see with a glass. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they had a meltdown of a nuclear reactor where they were working on uh, producing atomic bomb material, and uh, six workers were exposed to high levels of radiation, and they gave them bone marrow from unmatched donors, and none of the um, uh, bone marrows took. They were all rejected. And uh, some of the doses weren't high, so some of the... Uh, People that were exposed lived, but they didn't accept the bone marrow. But that was kind of an interesting way to try and rescue these people. Okay, so this is the basic design of a, a stem cell transplant. And this is called a myeloablative transplant because such high doses of radiation and then later on chemo and or radiation are given that completely wipe out the bone marrow. 
If you didn't somehow try and rescue them with bone marrow from a donor, then these patients would all die, just, uh, just like the uh, people at Hiroshima. So you have your patient, and you give them the myeloblative treatment, whether it's radiation or chemo, and then you have a donor where you get stem cells from. Initially, it was always from their bone marrow. And then you give it to the patient, and then their counts fall. And then roughly three to four weeks after you gave them the bone marrow, their counts would recover. And then hopefully they'd be cured of their disease. But this period of time here for about three to four weeks, when their counts were low, they were at risk, just like the Hiroshima um, people, of bleeding, of infection, um, and you know the other complications. So um, this is what they were doing in the very earliest transplants. And um, at first, things did not go well. Is it? Is that on the last? Yeah. At first, things didn't go well. Um, most of the patients died. A few other centers tried to do transplants. Yeah, in the 60s, but they really didn't understand about HLA matching, that's immunologic matching uh, between patients and donors, and they really didn't have any good way to prevent or treat graft-versus-host disease. So I remember um, when I did my training in the mid-80s, there were still physicians, hematologists around who'd been part of this, telling me about how they'd started transplant programs and then shut them down because the results were so poor. But Dr. Thomas... Uh, pers persevered, and um, this is a report in late in uh, 1977. Whoops, 1977, where uh, they reported on their first 100 transplant patients with leukemia from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. And uh, six patients died before they even engrafted. That means got their counts back. One patient rejected the graft, and of the remaining 93. 31 had their leukemia come back. 54 developed interstitial pneumonia, and that's mostly due to CMV infection and was almost universally fatal in these early days. And 75, so three-quarters of them, developed graft-versus-host disease. By the end of one year, only 13 of the original 100 were still alive. So um, these are you know, pretty poor outcomes by today's standards, but um, these were encouraging in some ways. And uh, it said in the, in the paper that some patients may be cured of their disease. Marrow transplantation should now be undertaken in the management of patients with acute leukemia who have an HLA-matched sibling donor. So this was the first real um, uh, demonstration that this could cure patients. They could survive this. Today... Um, if you want to get an insurance contract from an insurance company to do transplants, you have to have roughly a 55% one-year survival just to uh, get insurance covered. Here at Dartmouth, we're uh, much better than that. Our patients for allogeneic transplants, our survival is in the 70% for one year. So uh, things have really changed since these earliest days. So some of the lessons that were learned from uh, these... Uh, early transplants with Dr. Thomas, number one, patients can be cured, uh, but most patients still died of relapse or infection of graft-versus-host disease. Donors had to have an HLA-matched sibling or identical twin, but when identical twins were used, they had less chance of getting graft-versus-host disease, um, which is a good thing, but they had a higher chance of relapse. 
And this is the uh, first finding that gave rise to the idea that it wasn't just the chemo or the radiation that was curing these patients, but a thing called graft versus tumor or graft versus leukemia effect, where the immune system from the donor, once it reestablished itself in the patient, could actually kill off the, any leukemia that was left. So it's the combination of the high doses of chemo radiation plus the donor immune system that um, makes transplants so successful. <clears throat> okay. So moving along through history here to bring us more close to the uh, current times, uh, in the 1970s, a uh, big discovery was the use of cyclosporin, and this dramatically decreased the risk of graft-versus-host disease. It's also what made heart transplants, liver transplants, kidney transplants possible. Um, so that was a huge development. Also in uh, the late 60s, which isn't on the slide, people began to understand the HLA system, um, how uh, grafts were accepted and rejected. Then in the 1980s, the use of prophylactic antibiotics to prevent infections during the period of low blood counts were developed, including anti-pseudomonal cephalosporins were key. Uh, early treatment of CMV, which was a common cause of death, was developed with uh, gancyclovir and foscarnet. Then moving on to the 1990s, it was, became possible to not use just bone marrow, but peripheral blood stem cells where you can use tricks to make the stem cells come out of the bone marrow, and they can be, can be collected in the bloodstream. And also the use of granulocyte colony stimulating factor, or GCSF. And the combination of these two things, the peripheral stem cells and the GCSF, made the, time when the, the period of time when the blood counts are low go from roughly three to four weeks down to about half that, to roughly two weeks. So this greatly improved the chances of patients making it through this critical period of time. And their hospital stays were less and their side effects were less. Um, better ways to prevent graft-versus-host disease were developed. Better understanding of HLA matching was developed. And PCR monitoring of CMV infection was developed. So you didn't have to wait for a patient to uh, develop pneumonia before you knew they had CMV you could detect the virus very early in their blood and treat it before it caused pneumonia. In the 2000s, uh, many or non-myeloblative transplants were developed and became popular where you didn't have to give these massive doses of chemo or radiation. It turned out you could give just enough uh, radiation or chemo to suppress the recipient's immune system to allow them to accept the donor cells. And once the donor cells are in their body, They'd reprogram the immune system, and it, that would be able to kill off um, the cancer. And also in the 2000s, cord blood cells from um, the cords of babies when they're uh, being born. You can collect stem cells from those and store them, and they can be used uh, for people. And then finally, in the 2010s, I think the biggest development that we've had is this development of haploidentical transplants. And that's what uh, we'll keep talking about. So let's go back to our patient. So remember, his counts had gotten worse and worse, um, and it was time for a transplant for him. Uh, he was still in excellent physical condition, still getting out there, playing golf almost every day. 
Uh, he had normal heart, pulmonary function. His liver testing was normal. His performance status was 100%. He's like the perfect transplant patient. And, uh, but when we looked for a match for him, we tested his siblings, and he had no full HLA matches. We then went to the Mas National Marrow Donor Program, or Be the Match, as it's uh, often referred to now. And we went to the international registries. Um, including, this includes hundreds of thousands of potential donors. And he didn't have any matches anywhere. But his brother was a half match. So we decided that since he was in such good shape, he had this brother, that um, we might do a, he might be a, a good patient to think about a haploidentical transplant. He did have other options, though. Uh, <clears throat> he could have an unrelated HLA mismatch donor, where instead of being a perfect match, he might be a slight mismatch. But those patients actually do quite a bit worse. You can do a transplant, but their outcomes are worse. We don't do them here because they're more complicated. We send those patients to Boston. And when you go to Boston, you have to stay there for roughly three months. You can't come home. Anybody who wants to visit you has to go to Boston. You have to have a caretaker live with you in Boston. It's really inconvenient for our patients. But you know, if that's your only hope, you'll do it. You could have a cord blood transplant. Um, these uh, don't have to be so perfectly matched, but the outcomes here aren't as good either because um, it takes longer for the cord blood stem cells to repopulate the marrow. So patients often go many weeks or even a few months longer than they normally would before their cells come back. So they're at higher risk of infection or higher risk of just not engrafting. And then the third option here is um, the HLA haploidentical transplant. So how can this be done? You know, ever since the earliest days of transplant, you've got to have a perfect match. Uh, everybody knows that, but uh, maybe you don't need a perfect match. So now we have to talk about a little immunology, okay? So um, the most important immune cells that mediate graft-versus-host disease and killing of cancer cells in a transplant are T cells. So here is a T cell that... I guess the light's not working, that blue cell, the CD8 T cell. And uh, <clears throat> T cells are mostly there to protect us from viral infections. So this pink cell gets infected by a virus, and the virus does its thing inside the cell, and it produces peptide proteins that are chewed up by the cell into peptides. The peptides are then presented on the surface of the cell by HLA molecules, and they're class one and class two molecules. And when these are presented, that little round purple thing is a peptide from the virus, the CD8 T cell and other T cells through their T cell receptor can recognize this as an infected cell. The CD8 T cell and the other T cells then get all revved up and um, they release cytokines and uh, they start to divide. So you get many, many lymphocytes that can target and kill these infected cells. And this is one reason when you get a virus that um, you get better because you have a strong immune reaction. These cells also, a pretty similar thing can happen to protect us against cancer. Cancer cells can uh, present um, abnormal peptides on their surface too, but most cancers have a way to get around that. But anyway, this is how uh, a normal T cell will function. So uh, when we do a transplant or just in our own bodies, 
our T cells with their T cell receptors recognize our own cells as self. They recognize our own HLA-1 molecules, and they recognize our own peptides that get presented, so they don't attack our own cells. That's really important. So these HLA molecules um, are pretty unique. Um, they're coded on uh, genes on chromosome 6. There are several, uh, there are three different classes, 1, 2, and 3, and within them there are different clusters of the genes. And the most important ones for transplant are A, B, C, and DR, and DQ. And these are highly polymorphic genes. You know, in, in most genes, like an enzyme that, uh, you know, chews up a protein or something, there may be a few different um, variables throughout a population. But there are hundreds, tens to hundreds, of uh, variable genes at these different loci for the A, the B, the C, the DR, and the DQ. That's why you can't get a, a, um, a transplant from just a, a person off the street, because our HLA uh, genes and the proteins they produce are likely to be different. So when we think of matching a patient who needs a transplant to a donor, the first thing we do is we look to their family. And uh, this is an example of a family with two parents and four children. And to, just to make it simple, we'll just talk about the HLA, A, B, and DR loci. This would, here we'd be looking for a six out of six match, whereas um, usually we look for a 10 out of 10, but this makes it a little simpler. So um, the mom has what we call two haplotypes, one and two. And the, this isn't working, but you can see there's two ones. Like the mom's first haplotype is A1D8DR3, and you can see they're all different here. And these get mixed up in the children because the children get one from mom and one from dad, kind of like selecting off a, a menu. And child one has uh, A1 from mom and A3 from dad. And you can look across and you can see uh, if there are any matches here. So say child one comes down with leukemia and needs a transplant. Well, they're lucky, maybe, because they have their uh, sibling here is a perfect HLA match. So that is a potential donor. But to really be a donor, that sibling has to be in good enough health to undergo the donation procedure, and they can't have a disease like an autoimmune disease or uh, HIV infection, for example, or a cancer of their own that they might give to their sibling. So there are many reasons why you could be an HLA match and still not be uh, a good donor for a transplant. But um, this is how we, we find donors from the family. So um, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit more about the immunology now. So, um, so this is a um, uh, what happens in a transplant. So the purple still not working. So the purple uh, cell, the T cell, uh, is now um, a cell from like inside our own body or in the patient's body, and it recognizes um, the normal patient cell. And you can see the T cell receptor on the T cell recognizes the HLA molecules on all our cells. So it doesn't attack them, it doesn't do anything to them, unless we get a viral infection or something like that. But how about in a transplant? So um, the a light blue cell is now a T cell that's come across in a transplant from a donor. 
So it has a different T-cell receptor because it grew up in the body of the donor, not the recipient. So this T-cell receptor now doesn't recognize the um, HLA molecule. Whether or not it has a peptide it's presenting, it recognizes that as foreign. Okay? So this is what you would see if you weren't a perfect match. Okay? If you're a perfect HLA match, then it would recognize um, the recipient cell itself. But here, the T-cell receptor and the HLA molecule don't match. And that's what leads to um, graft-versus-host disease. Does it, everybody understand that? Does that make sense? Okay. So what's the effect of not having a perfect match? So this is a, a large study that uh, looked back at hundreds of patients to see the effects of um, <clears throat> if you had a, a slight mismatch, what would the effects be? So this is survival from the time of transplant. And the top dotted line here is a perfect match. So we call this a 10 out of 10 match. And the two-year survival, time we often measure that, is a little over 50% in this, these patients that were studied. If you have a one antigen mismatch, so that would be um, a nine out of 10 match, it goes down to um, into roughly about 30%, maybe the low 30s. If you have a two antigen mismatch, it goes down into the 20%. So you can see this really isn't an ideal option for patients to have, even if they are cl a close match. This is data from the uh, Be the Match or the National Marrow Donor Program about what are the possibilities of um, a patient finding a match in the registry. And you can see that um, the best chance of finding a match is for white people from white European ancestry. And uh, a perfect match is shown in blue, and a close match is shown in green. So we really want a, a blue if possible. So it's about a 75% chance for someone uh, from white European uh, ancestry. But for most of the others, it's more like 50% or African-Americans, it's down even below 20%. So the odds aren't so good. So if there's some way we had to go beyond uh, these large pools of potential donors to be able to transplant patients, that would be a really good thing. So uh, what if we could do haploidentical transplants, people who are half matches? This would vastly increase the number of potential donors. So here's our example of the family with a child who comes down with leukemia. So what if we um, can do half matches? So here's our full match, but say this guy, uh, you know, he had cancer, so he's not uh, a good donor. Now we can look to this second child, and you can see that uh, he he or she, is a half match to the first one um, through their dad with the A3B63DR6. So if we can do a haploidentical transplant, this sibling now becomes a potential donor. But there's more. We can now um, go to mom and dad because they are almost by definition, by definition, they are half matches to their child. We can uh, go beyond this. It's possible that aunts and uncles and cousins will be half matches. If, say, the mother uh, was, uh, uh, had a uh, previous husband that she had children with, those children are potential half matches. 
So this just uh, vastly opens up the possibilities if you can figure out a way to do a haploidentical transplant. Another reason this is good, if you go through the National Marrow Donor Program, <clears throat> sometimes these people get lost to follow up and you can't find them. Or you find them and it takes a while uh, for them to get evaluated. It can take several weeks because you have to make sure it's safe for them to donate. You have to make sure they're not going to give some illness um, to the patient. And um, sometimes they just decide they don't want to donate. Even though they signed up 10 years ago when they were in college, they don't want to go through with it now. But if you have a family member, then they're usually much more motivated, much easier to get a hold of, and you can move more quickly to transplant, which is often very important for leukemia patients and other patients with serious diseases. So how can this work? Here's all these lymphocytes from a half-matched transplant. Half of the lymphocytes that are coming into the patient are going to be these light blue ones. They're going to see um, the recipient as foreign. They're going to want to multiply. They're going to go crazy and start bad graft-versus-host disease. So how can we do this? So to understand how we do it, we have to understand a little bit more about graft-versus-host disease. So um, there are three phases um, that have been described for graft-versus-host disease. And so this is in a patient who's received um, a bone marrow donation, and uh, you know it's been administered to them. And uh, so the donor cells are in their body. And uh, the... Be Sorry, let me step back. Before even they get it, they get the radiation and the chemo, and that damages their, own, their cells in their body. Chemo, you know, these high doses damage the cells. The cells break down, and um, that starts, um, leads the immune cells and the cells in the host to present um, host peptides on the surface of the cells. They then get the cells from the uh, donor, and uh, so here's a host cell presenting antigens, and the donor cell now comes along, and it recognizes um, these cells as presenting foreign antigen, foreign to the donor cells. Just like we talked about on the last slide, the donor cells then start to proliferate in the body. They start to produce cytokines. And if this isn't um, stopped very quickly or prevented by um, anti-graft-versus-host drugs, then the patients get severe graft-versus-host, and they would die. And in a haplotransplant, half the cells are going to want to do this. And uh, previously, there's been no way every patient would die if they got a haplotransplant from the severe graft-versus-host disease. So what's the magic that makes a haplotransplant feasible? You know, is it a new monoclonal antibody that somebody developed that we put in there to prevent it? You know, that costs $80,000 every time you give it to a patient? Well, no, it's not that. Um, is it a new tyrosine kinase inhibitor that we give that inhibits the function of the lymphocytes? Well, no, it's not that either. And uh, what it is is good old cyclophosphamide. And uh, if Lionel were here, he'd appreciate this, I think. Uh, <laughs> Cyclophosphamide was originally approved by the FDA in 1959, so almost 60 years ago. And it's this drug that uh, does the magic. So uh, you may remember from medical school that cyclophosphamide is an alkylating agent. It's a bifunctional agent where you have these two 
The chlorine groups on the far end of the molecule, those are highly reactive. So when you give this drug to patients, it's activated in the liver, then goes inside cells where uh, these two functional groups where the chlorides are bind to DNA and damage it. And it damages the DNA in many ways. Um, it causes crosslinks between the two strands. It binds in different ways. Um, and the cells, they recognize this as DNA damage. So if, if you have a cancer cell and you treat a patient with cyclophosphamide, then uh, it kills the cancer cell by inducing apoptosis. But as many of you in this room know, if you're a, a kidney doctor or if you're a rheumatologist, just for example, uh, cyclophosphamide is very good at suppressing the immune system because at, um, at even low doses, it's active against killing off lymphocytes. And that's how it's going to work here. So <clears throat> at this critical point in the transplant where the donor cells are seeing uh, the recipient cells and want to start this whole graft versus host reaction, the first thing that happens is this proliferation of all of the lymphocytes. And if you give cyclophosphamide at just the right time, you can kill off these cells. Another important point is that cells that are act actively cycling are much more susceptible to cyclophosphamide. So if a cell is resting, it probably won't be killed. But if it's cycling and dividing, then uh, it, it's much more likely to be killed off. So what we do is three, to three and four days after a, a patient gets the haplomatched cells from a donor, we hit them with massive uh, doses of cyclophosphamide. And that's shown here. This is um, the transplant protocol. And what that does is it kills off all those lymphocytes that are dividing. So uh, this is how we treated our patient, and uh, this is kind of the standard. They come into the hospital. Actually, they don't come into the hospital. This could be done as an outpatient. And they get started out by getting a low dose of cyclophosphamide and a drug called fludarabine. And these are given to suppress the patient's immune system so that they can accept the donor cells. They also get a small dose of total body irradiation, um, much less than was given in the original transplants, but this also suppresses the immune system. They again, then get their bone marrow, which is just given through an, an IV. It knows to go to the uh, bone marrow and start growing there. And then, like I said, on uh, just a few days after the stem cells are administered, they get this large dose of cytoxan, 50 milligrams per kilogram per day. And this is a very large dose. But it's effective in stopping the graft versus host. They get, then get the GCSF to stimulate their uh, counts to come back. And they get two drugs, mycophenolate and tacrolimus, to um, help prevent graft versus host disease. So that, that's how it works. And then usually by about... Um, Day 15 to 20, the patient's counts recover, and they get out of the hospital and go home. So these are some uh, results from uh, an early trial, pretty much the only randomized trial that's been done looking at this. And the trial compared um, patients who didn't have an HLA-matched donor, and so either received cord blood, which is the current standard, or these haploidentical transplants. And uh, this first slide looks at acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease. And um, the black line here is severe graft-versus-host disease, so focus on that. 
So with cord blood, you can see maybe 15% of the patients get severe graft-versus-host disease. But in the haplos, none get severe acute graft-versus-host disease. If we then look at chronic graft-versus-host disease, which happens uh, months to years after the transplant, it's, um, they, they still get it with a haplotransplant, but it's less than what's seen in the cord blood. So that's definitely uh, looks promising. Then if we look at survival with, uh, between cord bloods and transplant, we can see um, the slide shows relapse and non-relapse mortality. So that means they died of graft-versus-host or infection or some other toxicity. And just look at the non-relapse mortality compared with the cord blood, where it's maybe 20%, and uh, the haploidentical, where it's much lower although the relapse in the study was a little bit higher in the haplo. Then if you look at overall survival down here at the bottom <clears throat> um, with the core blood, so overall survival means you're alive. You may have relapsed with your leukemia, but you're alive. And uh, the overall survival with the core blood is maybe about 55%, and it's clearly higher here with the haplo. Then if you look at um, survival, overall survival, I'm sorry, event-free survival, that means um, you haven't relapsed or had any other serious complication, is still a little better than the haplo, but about the same. So this is uh, clearly in this randomized study shown to be um, a viable strategy. And much more research is going on now. So just to finish up with our case here, so as we, there's a twist here. So as we prepared for our transplant, um, we're just a couple weeks away. The patient comes to clinic, and uh, this is just a routine visit, you know, check in, make sure everything's okay before we move to the transplant. And the patient says, I've noticed in the last couple weeks I've got these bumps under my skin. And uh, this is what it looks like. It wasn't much to see. They're slightly reddish. But if you felt his skin, there are these marble-like, hard, firm um, nodules under his skin. And the skin biopsy showed that he had a disease called subcutaneous paniculitis-like T-cell lymphoma. What the heck is that? I've never heard of that. <laughs> so uh, went to uh, our lymphoma team, and uh, we're really lucky. Elizabeth Bankston and Eric Lansigan are our, our lymphoma docs. And even luckier, Eric is an expert in cutaneous lymphoma. And uh, so he and the lymphoma team reviewed the case with me, and um, they recommended that we start him on Targretin, which is a vitamin A analog, which can suppress the growth of these. And I think Dr. Ornstein might have read this biopsy <laughs> and uh, made this diagnosis of this unusual form of cutaneous lymphoma. So this, is, this shows um, PET scans and the... This one here uh, shows his original PET scan. And look at all these dots. These are all the nodules lighting up. And look at his, particularly in his legs, very hot. These nodules didn't seem this big on exam, but they were very hot. We treated him with Targretin for three months. And you can see on his upper body, most of the nodules went away. But he still had some residual ones on his lower extremities here. But you couldn't feel them anymore. But by PET scan, there was still some active disease. So we felt that we had a pretty good um, 
response here. It wasn't a complete response, but it was a good partial response, and we could take him to transplant. The neat thing here is that um, this disease is also curable by a transplant. There's no other way to cure this disease. So not only is myelodysplastic syndrome, but his lymphoma is potentially curable by a transplant. So um, <clears throat> we brought him in, and he went through the protocol I showed you a few slides ago. His neutrophil count recovered by day 15. His last platelet count, uh, uh, platelet transfusion, was on day 17, and that's when he went home. His only con uh, complication during the admission was a mild neutropenic fever. No source was ever found. Once his counts came up, it didn't recur. At day 60, we usually take a look at these patients to see their initial response to the transplant and call that uh, day 60 restaging. His bone marrow biopsy showed no evidence of the myelodysplastic syndrome. It was completely gone. We looked at his chimerism. Chimerism um, tells us how much of his marrow has been replaced by his donors. And it was greater than 95%. So we call that complete donor chimerism. So that was, that's great. That's exactly what we hope to see. We looked at his um, PET scan. And as you can see uh, on the far right, it's completely clear now. So his lymphoma has been uh, achieved a complete remission from the transplant. And this is just in uh, 60 days, and he had no graft-versus-host disease at all. So uh, <laughs> he was seen by Susan Brighton, one of our nurse practitioners, last week, and uh, he, or maybe two weeks ago, uh, and he was at day 114, and he reported he was feeling well, and he's been play out playing golf. We told him it would be six months before he could play golf, but he snuck out there. <laughs> and uh, he told us he walked the front nine, but he did have to take a card on the back nine. So uh, this is uh, our first haploidentical transplant. We've done one other since that, but uh, this has been amazingly successful and better than uh, we could have uh, even hoped for. So it's been great. So uh, I have a lot of acknowledgments here. We are the only allogeneic transplant center north of Boston. And one reason we are is because we have such a, a great medical center and a great group of clinicians that help us. You can have the best transplanters in the world, but if you don't have the support from um, all the other departments and people, you just can't have a successful program. So a lot of people to thank here, and I want to start with uh, Dr. Meehan. He's the director of our transplant program, and uh, he's amazing. Uh, he keeps us all focused, keeps our, um, on our research and our patients, and it's uh, largely because of his efforts that we have the amazing outcomes that we do here, much better than the average transplant program. Um, I also want to say that you know, even though I'm giving this presentation today and this patient I took through transplant, um, I was just lucky. We, you know, he just happened to be my patient. Um, we all worked on this together, coming up with the haploidentical protocol and uh, putting it together. It could have been uh, any of the other doctors uh, who could have done this. Our other core team of allo transplanters are Don, Dr. John Hill, who's the uh, director of the allo transplant program, and Christy Hayes. So we do all the aloes, but then the rest of our hematologists, whoops, 
The rest of our hematologists here um, take care of patients who get autologous transplants, and uh, they all participate in their care, and uh, that includes Dr. Ornstein, who uh, helps us with coagulation as well as pathology, um, and Dr. Uh, Drescher. Then we have our nurse practitioners who are just totally invaluable. Uh, Diane and Susan and Beth and Anna work in our outpatient clinic and help us take care of our patients. And uh, Tina Martin and Rachel Lopez and Katie Carpenter are our inpatient um, uh, nurse practitioners who help take care of the patients when they're uh, on the ward. Our coordinators are Lynn Rood, Kate Wilcox, Elise Bushnash, Ashley uh, Finney, and Kylie McCarty, who help coordinate for our transplant and hematology patients. Then we have our social workers, uh, Dorothy McKenna, who's our data manager, Connie Goodrich, um, who's our administrative assistant, and Josh Hickman, who's our practice manager. We couldn't do this without all these people. Our One West nurses and LNAs and our 3K uh, nurses and LNAs. And a particular shout-out to the cardiology nocturnists, who are probably home in bed right now. <laughs> but uh, they help cover our nurse practitioner patients at night. They didn't know what they were signing up for. <laughs> and then um, we couldn't do this without our transfusion medicine colleagues, hematopathology, and our pharmacists, who are just amazing. We have the most amazing pharmacists in the cancer center. And then all the other departments, on a weekly basis, we call in help um, to these departments uh, and all of you for consultations. You know, palliative care, infectious disease. We couldn't do transplants without you. Gastroenterology, pulmonology, right on down the list. If we didn't have the support of all these other departments and clinicians, we couldn't do transplants. So thank you. So I'd be glad to take any questions in the last yeah, so minute. Uh, just one minute. Stories like this, though, that um, you know, we have a fellowship program in hematology and oncology, and much of the children of some of those oncologists, and you ask the fellows where they want to be when they work, they say, I want to be a hematologist. Like Chris Tanner. Any questions? Yes, William. So who did he end up getting the bone marrow from? And was he matched, was the haploidental match on the same allele that causes rheumatoid arthritis risk? Oh, man. So I have no idea about rheumatoid arthritis risk, but it was from his brother. DR4? DR4? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We could look at that, though. Yeah, but it was his brother. Yeah. Yes, Eric? Yeah, just a comment. I think it was a great, great talk. And, um, in this very room on Wednesdays at noon, we talked about um, m and We do m and um, and a lot of the cases are actually on graft versus host mm-hmm. disease. I think what you did is a you know, great presentation of why we do what we do and gives a, a sense of the Department of Medicine um, on the success stories that come through our clinic. So that, that's really important, I think. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. As a primary care guy, thanks for reminding me about, about how this stuff works. Um, I'm interested in that six years um, when he was worked up fairly aggressively at the beginning, mm-hmm. fairly mild 
anencytopenia with a bone marrow biopsy. Then he had six years of being watched closely uh, before eventually things began to tank. Can you talk a little bit about, about the benefit of those six years of, of close observation as compared to if I had just held off with referring him until, um, until things began to get a little bit worse? But what, what would have been lost had I just held on to him and not sent him to you at the beginning? Probably not much. <laughs> yeah, that, that probably would have been fine. But, uh, you know, when he originally presented, you know, maybe he would have a more aggressive myelodysplastic syndrome or some other disease in his bone marrow that needed to be treated right away. Uh, he was just lucky he had this low-level MDS that, you know, we could follow. But it might have been something more serious. Yeah, let me just sort of follow up and challenge that. Um, you're saying that everybody with very mild tenocytopenia should have a bone marrow biopsy in case they might have something bad? No. Okay. Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it would be perfectly fine, particularly maybe an older patient, uh, to say, you know, you might have MDS, but even if we made the diagnosis, we wouldn't do anything about it. So why don't we just follow you and not do a bone marrow biopsy? Well, I don't want to have that conversation. <laughs> I'll have it. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, okay, great. Thank, Thank you. you all. Thank <laughs> you.